ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. This week's episode is brought to you by Goldman Sachs Asset Management ETFs. Smart investments made simple. Learn more at gsam.com slash ETFs. Alps Distributors, Inc. is the distributor of the Goldman Sachs ETF funds. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, simply a fantastic show this week. Joining me will be Abby Woodham, Vice President of Factor Strategy at BlackRock, and Anil Rao, Executive Director of Research at MSCI. And we are going to go in-depth on an area of ETFs getting a lot more attention this year, which is minimum volatility ETFs. And of course, BlackRock offers the iShares lineup of ETFs. That includes the nearly $30 billion iShares MSCI USA Minval Factor ETF, ticker symbol USMV, they do have uh, other Minval products as well, but we're going to dive into this in pretty good detail. Uh, we'll discuss how Minval strategies work, how they compare to low-vol strategies, where I, I see a lot of confusion there, and then we'll also talk about the investor behavior component of these strategies, which uh, you know I always like covering. So this should be a great conversation with two true experts in this space. Now, also joining me this week will be Tom Cole, CEO and co-founder of Distillate Capital, who just last week, they launched the Distillate Small Mid Cash Flow ETF, ticker DSMC. But I've got to tell you, Distillate's current flagship ETF is one that I feel like is flying under the radar. That's the Distillate U.S. Fundamental Stability and Value ETF, ticker symbol DSTL, this thing is quietly approaching nearly $800 million in assets. And I'm actually surprised it's not getting a bit more attention. But Distillate has an interesting approach. So they view the world a, a little differently when it comes to value investing and the value factor. And we're going to discuss that approach and also hear Tom's views on the uh, current markets and the value factor moving forward. So two interesting and Certainly very timely topics in minimum volatility and value investing. And then not only that, I have on the line with me right now the one and only Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. We have our usual grab bag of topics to get into. And yes, that does include these two Jim Cramer ETFs that were filed last week. So let's chat with Todd now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is, is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, great having you back on the uh, podcast. Do we have anything at all to talk about this week? Well, my goodness. Well, could we, we could spend some time talking about the Chiefs game. Congratulations. What a game. That was probably one of the uh, better regular season games I've seen in quite a while. Uh, obviously, the officiating played a key role in, in the game, which you'd never like to see. Luckily, it didn't cost the Chiefs a, a victory, but that was a fun one. I would think for anybody who's just a fan of the uh, NFL, they had to have enjoyed that game. Yeah, it's nice when you can give the team 17 points to start off and yet still come back and win. It tells you how good the Chiefs are. 
And by the way, while we're talking sports, not to bring up a, a bad topic, but my condolences to you and, and all the Mets fans out there. I know that was a, a painful series to, uh, to watch, especially after the regular season they had, although they did falter down the stretch. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm now shifting focus towards the Yankees. I, my wife is a Yankee fan. My son is split between the Mets and Yankees. I'll be supportive of, of them. But yeah, it was a great Mets season and it's hard to lose, but everybody loses but one team. So you got to accept it. All right. So enough about sports. Let's talk uh, ETFs. And I do think we have to start with these Jim Cramer ETF filings. Uh, there were two filings from Tuttle Capital Management. That's the same firm behind the uh, ETF that uh, shorts ARKK and Kathy Wood. That's the Axis Short Innovation Daily ETF, ticker SARK, S-A-R-K. They've now filed for an inverse Kramer ETF, ticker SJIM, S-J-I-M, and a long Kramer ETF, LJIM. And <laughs> look, Todd, I have lots of thoughts here, but you are the featured guest, so I'm going to be polite and, and give you first crack. Just give me your initial take on these filings. Sure. I mean, well, Jim Cramer is perhaps the most famous or for some people infamous financial pundit. He's got a strong following. Many people who root against him. It's ironic, actually. He's for years argued that ETFs are harmful to the overall markets. And now he might reluctantly become part of the ETF industry indirectly. But I guess a few things to note. These are not managed by or directly tied to Jim Cramer. And I think that's uh, extremely important. Uh, I guess maybe let's talk about the, what these two ETFs are. LGM that you mentioned, the long Kramer ETF, is going to own two dozen or so stocks and sector ETFs based on Kramer's recommendations and sell them when he stops commenting on them. So it could, again, could be a more tax-efficient, diversified way of having Jim Kramer as a pseudo-portfolio uh, manager. But I think more people are paying attention to SGIM, which is a bet against his recommendations. So it's going to go long the stocks or ETFs where Jim Cramer is is bearish. One thing I'm curious about, and I don't know how, if you were able to crawl into the prospectus, I, I sort of glanced over it, but I'm trying to you know, imagine how these picks are going to be tracked. I mean, does some poor soul out there have to watch Mad Money every day and track these stock picks? Because that'd be uh, quite the job uh, to do. Or do, do you know how they're actually going to track these? I don't know how they're going to track them or choose them specifically. I mean, they, they talked about it was going to hold 20 to 25 companies uh, or stocks or ETFs. The interesting thing is it will sell those securities that are in the portfolio if he stops commenting on them. So it, it isn't that he's telling people to get out of the position. He's just no longer in, in that five or seven day window advocating for such a such a strategy. I, I do think that that CNBC does a recap that talks about what was highlighted on it. So that may be the easier way of of doing so. But yeah, I, I think that's that someone is going to be. You know, this is technically not technically it is actively managed, but not actively managed by Jim Cramer. It's actively managed by uh, Tuttle and I and and the Axis team. Yeah. So, OK. So, I mean, basically, you're going to have somebody that goes in, tracks all of these recommendations or, or the buys or sells and, and you know, try to construct a strategy that is at least somewhat reflective of, of what Jim Cramer is out there saying. Here's one question that I have, though, on this whole thing is clearly because of that investment methodology, these aren't going to be perfect. Uh, we, we, we know that. And so these ETFs are looking to capitalize on really the intellectual property of, of Jim Cramer, and really, I mean, the, the brand of Jim Cramer. And I'm curious whether or not you think that's going to be an issue, because these ETFs are actually using Cramer's name in the fund name, at least they are in the filings. And I just wonder, if I'm Jim Cramer, I look at Tuttle Capital trying to make money off of my likeness, and I know, Todd, neither of us are uh, intellectual property attorneys, so let, let's put that out there. I think everybody knows that. But do you think this could be a potential uh, legal issue for Tuttle? Well, yeah, you're right. I'm not an, an IP attorney. I don't wear that hat. I'm not, I'm, but I, I am wearing my Vetify hat. So let me attempt, uh, to do this. So I think Kramer seems, well, he's, he's publicly through social media and on Twitter has said he's 
okay with it or seems to be okay with it and is commenting about people rooting against him and he's okay with people rooting against him and this is what drives him to be able to make uh to do the research to do the investment calls but let's remember see he works for cnbc cnbc actually has an investing club with jim kramer cnbc is not a party to these etfs as far as i can understand it so i think cnbc is more likely to have a problem and have legs to stand on behind it so but you mentioned earlier sark s-a-r-k it has innovation in the name it doesn't have arc in the name it has it in the ticker the same way that s jim will have jim uh in it so i think if these products come to market they ultimately are uh something maybe tied to mad money but maybe even not even able to use the mad money name as well if that's if that's protected but We'll see. It's it's interesting that we don't usually see people rooting against uh, an individual, not a firm like ARC, but rooting against an individual uh, like Jim Cramer. No, I agree. And, you know, as I thought about this, I, I actually wonder if the way these filings were submitted is intentional by Tuttle in that they know they can't use Cramer's name and they'll likely get a nasty a cease and desist letter from Kramer's attorneys or, or CNBC or whoever, maybe just the SEC doesn't like this for whatever reason. And so at that point, Tuttle can just change the name to something else. But given all of the publicity around these filings already, everybody will know exactly what these are, right? And that's kind of how Sark played out. Everybody knows, okay, this is shorting ARKK and, and Kathy Wood. That's my tinfoil hat conspiracy theory. But to your point, I did see um, Jim Kramer's tweets. And for, for listeners who maybe didn't see these, I'll, I'll read a portion of them. So he, he tweeted out, I think this was the day after the filings, or maybe two days after. He said, these will be my only comments about this, quote unquote, exciting new way for a promoter to make money. And I'm sure it can be tricked to make me look bad. Again, nothing new in my career. And it won't be uh, new long after the wagers move on to CDs and cash. Good luck. And then he went on, he talked a little bit about some of his uh, crypto uh, bets. And he said, look, everything is disclosed. I want you to bet against me. You do not do this for 42 years and lose money every year. I always uh, welcome people betting against me. I've done this for 42 years. And then he, he offered up some uh, examples of stocks that he you know, said he called early on that uh, did well. And he said, I welcome all comers. I, I don't know, Todd, you know... I guess I'm just amazed at how polarizing uh, Jim Cramer is overall. And you may have seen this last week. So I was standing in the kitchen with my wife cooking dinner. I think this was maybe last Tuesday. And I saw this Jim Cramer headline on CNBC, which was basically saying the exact opposite of something he had said a few days earlier. So I tweeted it out right at a screenshot of one of the headlines and then a, a, a screenshot of the most recent headline. And uh, honestly, it's not my style. Like, I don't like taking personal shots on Twitter, but... Kramer's a big boy. He's out in the media. I know he can handle it. And so I sent this off. And I'll tell you what, this tweet went wild with all sorts of negative comments about Kramer and, you know, people really taking personal shots. People are fired up about him. And so if nothing else, I do think these Tuttle ETFs are going to get a lot of attention on social media. Now, to, a, a little bit to what you were saying earlier, and I don't want to get on a huge soapbox here, but I personally have... Uh, mixed feelings about Kramer, because on one hand, I feel like he's done a lot for investing. You, you know, if you think about it, how many other people have gotten as many other people interested in stocks and investing as he has, right? And I, I do think at, at times he really does try to go about it in an educational fashion. I do think he's a smart guy. I would actually say that he's probably forgotten more about investing than a lot of people know. I, I just don't think you can sit on TV and talk about the stuff he does for as long as he does without knowing a tremendous amount about the markets. And I, I'm sorry, I honestly believe that. I think the problem here is that uh, he's serving another master and that his job is to get eyeballs and clicks. And he does have his investing club that you mentioned and those sorts of things. And so I do wonder if it all, at the end of the day, comes down to marketing for him. Does, does that make sense at all? I think it does, but I get bringing it back to the ETFs that are that are being filed. This is trying to market against, or I guess to piggyback on uh, 
what his efforts are. And so I have more of an issue with people who will ultimately buy the ETFs when the either the long or the short one. Again, I'm, we'll cover them at Vetify when they if and when they come to market. But the time horizon and rationale for ownership of the ETF is not consistent with what's inside the ETF. These these ETFs will have extremely high turnover. They're not actually managed by Jim Cramer. He might like the stock, but not talk about it within a given week because it wasn't newsworthy and you shouldn't be selling it just because he didn't talk about it. But I also have a I have concerns about rooting against a person or a firm as an investment approach. I think it's too emotional. Um, you know, we started the show talking about sports and I think it's reasonable for people to root for the Chiefs and the Giants and root against the Raiders and the Eagles. But if that is your nest egg uh, is, is to bet for or against them, that is a, that is to me a problem. I don't think that should be how you should be focusing your longer term objective. So fun money, Sure, but I don't think that the, the time horizon is going to make sense for people the way they think it is. I love that. That's extremely well said, Todd, and you're right. Uh, if you're betting against something, it does feel like, it, like in this case, especially if it's more of a personal nature, that you have emotion wrapped uh, up in that. And we know emotion never really mixes very well with uh, a good long-term investing approach. We'll, we'll move on here, but I guess on that note, I'm assuming you think the audience for these ETFs is retail investors. Is that who would use these? Yeah, I, I do. I, I I certainly don't expect an institution. If an institution wanted Jim Cramer to to run money for them, they could obviously reach out to be able to do so. Uh, I think, and a financial advisor, uh, similarly, I think this is going to be direct retail. Um, I think that this is a novelty, um, or it, it will be a novelty, and it's going to depend upon how it performs. And, you know, we had buzz. Uh, that came to market, which was tied to Dave Portnoy, um, and demand came out relatively strong out of the gate the first month or two, and wore off. So, uh, you know, will this will these products long or short have staying power? I'm skeptical, but the retail investors can find something and stick with it far longer than I might suggest is appropriate. Well, these will be fascinating to watch, if nothing else, especially if that inverse uh, Kramer ETF does really well. I mean, that's just going to draw a tremendous amount of attention. <laughs> so uh, it will be fun, again, if nothing else, to, to track these moving forward. Okay, let's move on. I do want to talk a little bit about uh, ETF flows, both in the third quarter and then year to date. And I, I guess I'll just open this up to you, Todd. I mean, anything in particular standing out on ETF flows. I know you track these as closely as uh, anyone. What what are you seeing? Well, we could have the second best year ever uh, in terms of net inflows. You know, for the first three quarters, uh, using the data that we we sourced through Vetify, over four hundred billion dollars of new money uh, into ETFs. We typically see a strong fourth quarter, uh, so we could get to six hundred billion, which would be down, of course, from the record year we saw in twenty twenty one. But this is the worst year for stocks and bonds combined in a long time. And so what I find compelling is that not only is money going in, but where it's going into lower risk equities, into treasuries, into ultra short active bond ETFs. And, and I'll pause here for a second, uh, but we can then talk about some examples. Well, one thing that I find just amazing this year, you mentioned the you know some 400 billion in inflows, very resilient in the face of the markets we've seen this year. So I saw a stat last week. I believe it was actually from your old uh, stomping grounds at CFRA. They noted that only 6% of ETFs have positive returns in 2022. Yet you look at flows, and I think we're on track now for either the second or yeah, third best year ever. Uh, so I, I think we have to highlight that. In terms of the composition of flows, I mean, I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about investors gravitating towards some of the lower risk equities? I mean, what specifically are you seeing there? Sure. So, uh, yeah, let's talk about the equity side and maybe we'll fold in fixed income briefly for it. But uh, we've seen dividend strategies be extremely popular. Uh, I think we're going to have a record year for dividend uh, equity ETFs, the Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF, SCHD, and the Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF, VYM. I believe have each gathered more than $7 billion for the first uh, nine months of the year. Uh, we've seen 
I think you're going to talk uh, later on with iShares and MSCI about minimum volatility investing, but USMV and Peer, not uh, identical, but Peer, uh, lower volatility ETF from Invesco, SPLV, together, they had a combined $5 billion. We've seen strong interest in covered call strategies, so JEPI, J-E-P-I, uh, the JP Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF has been extremely popular. Investors are, are really wanting to be part of the equity market if there is a recovery, but with downside protection, uh, which is which is perfectly reasonable. And it's great that we've got all these tools to help investors and advisors uh, to be able to compare and contrast various products. What about value ETFs? I know you published a piece yesterday where you discussed the uh, outperformance of this group relative to growth ETFs. And as you heard at the top, I will be visiting later with uh, Tom Cole of Distillate Capital, who they offer some value-oriented ETFs. W what are you seeing here specifically in terms of flows? Right. So I wrote a piece that you can find on ETFtrends.com called Value is in the Eye of the Beholder uh, to highlight both the, the strength in value ETFs versus growth. Uh, so ETFs like Vanguard Value, VTV, is significantly outperforming Vanguard Growth ETF, VUG, the iShares S&P 500 value ETF, IVE, significantly outperforming IVW, that's the iShares S&P 500 growth, by more than 1,000 basis points. Um, VTV added $15 billion in the first nine months of the year. Uh, investors are seeing the opportunities and benefits. Value is holding up much better. And there's room for potential upside. I know you're, you mentioned you're talking to uh, a firm with a somewhat under the radar and but yet sizable value ETF. The value ETFs are garnering more interest in 2022 than, than in, in many recent years. And then you mentioned the uh, the, the record-setting flows into dividend-oriented ETFs. And I, I think this is somewhat related, but I saw your most recent chart of the week last week. I believe you posted this on Thursday and this looked at how advisors are finding income in today's market. Do you want to brief, uh, briefly touch on that as well? Because, again, I do think it actually plays into the flow discussion here. It, it definitely does. And as listeners probably know, at Vetify, we regularly ask advisors questions to understand their mindset. And we have an impressive data warehouse that I can tap into and that our clients can tap into to get the pulse of the investment community. As you mentioned, I write a weekly column on Thursday called Chart of the Week. We recently asked advisors where they were finding income, not just through bonds, with bonds with the bond categories were available, but we saw no, no, everything was relatively diversified. Dividend paying equities was the most popular, but 24% of the respondents chose that. The second, uh, tied for second place came from alternatives that we listed real estate as the example of that. And then hybrid, uh, like preferred and capital securities, each of those were at 22%. So in that piece that uh, I wrote on Thursday, we talked about VNQ, which is the Vanguard real estate ETF uh, for investors that want a more targeted exposure to, to the real estate sector, as opposed to what you'd find in a broader dividend ETF. And in fact, some dividend ETFs actually exclude real estate. And then we highlighted a slightly under the radar ETF, PACER, Benchmark Data and Infrastructure, Real Estate ETF, SRVR, Server, is how I would say it as a word, uh, which focuses on faster growing real estate companies, uh, but also pays a, a nice dividend. So in, advisors, investors have a wide range of choices, uh, but it was just compelling to hear from, from the investment community where they're most interested in in this environment. No, that is interesting. And it was interesting that it, it was pretty well split across the board with the different categories there. But dividend paying equities did come in uh, at the top of the list. And, you know, one one thing that I think is worth us flagging here is I just pulled down the top 10 ETFs in terms of uh, inflows year to date. And one that's out there is one that you touched on. Number seven on the list, the Schwab U.S. Dividend Equity ETF, ticker SEHD. Uh, just pretty impressive to see an ETF like that up on the leaderboard with, uh, you know, stalwarts like the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF and the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF and the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF. Uh, you know, those are some of the big boys up there and you have SEHD right there. Uh, Todd, just a couple of minutes left. L let's come back to uh, fixed income ETFs on the flows. What are you seeing here? 
Yeah, you're right. So treasury ETFs are uh, extremely popular, but both the long and the short end of it. So the Spider Bloomberg one to three month T-bill ETF, the ticker's bill, uh, and the iShare short treasury ETF, SHV, each with more than $10 billion in the first nine months of the year. But they actually were outgathered or outgained, as you probably can see uh, on, on your list. The iShare's 20 plus year treasury ETF, TLT, which is focuses obviously on long-term bonds, uh, were more popular. So some people are, are protecting and hiding under the mattresses and getting some income with their short-term treasuries and others are willing to take that rate bet uh, and go out at the curve uh, with, with TLT. So that, that's what we've seen is treasury ETFs, uh, flight to quality and, and, and advisors, investors are, are, are eager to, to hold, you know, to tread water in this kind of env environment. No, that's a, a story I think will continue to be interesting to watch. The Treasury bond ETFs, you know, over $100 billion in inflows this year. And to your point, really all across the curve. And I think you, you hit the nail on the head in that I think you have one group of investors who they're perfectly comfortable not taking any duration risk, scooping up, you know, what, north of 4% yields on the front end, which we haven't seen that in a long time. I mean, just a year ago, you'd be lucky to get. 30 or 40 basis points on a two-year treasury. Now you can get over two or over 4%. Uh, so I think that's one cohort. And then I think on the other side, you do have some investors taking on duration risk and something like TLT just as a, as a hedge. If we do get into a nasty recession and, and things go south, uh, you know, historically that type of investment has performed well. So I, I think that's exactly what's happening. But Todd, we're going to have to leave it there. A fun chat as always. Thank you for joining me this week. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I hope to see you down and the audience down at Exchange in February 2023. Registration is now open. That's coming quick. It'll be here before uh, before we know it. Todd, thank you. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. And now a word from iShares. The shift to a low-carbon economy is changing the way people invest iShares Sustainable ETFs help you position your portfolio to manage sustainability-related opportunities and risks, such as climate change. Get your share of progress at iShares.com sustainable. Visit iShares.com to view a prospectus which includes investment objectives, risks, fees, expenses, and other information that you should read and consider carefully before investing. Risk includes principal loss. There is no guarantee any fund will exhibit positive or favorable sustainability characteristics. Prepared by BlackRock Investments, LLC. I'm now joined by Abby Woodham, Vice President of Factor Strategy at BlackRock, and Anil Rao, Executive Director of Research at MSCI. Of course, BlackRock is the world's largest ETF issuer, and here in the U.S., they currently offer nearly 400 ETFs, over $2.1 trillion in assets. Uh, MSCI, as I think many are familiar, they're a premier provider of indexes, and portfolio construction, along with risk management tools and research. And obviously, BlackRock and MSCI partner together on a number of products, including several ETFs, which we'll be discussing today. Abby and Neil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us, Nate. Okay, so look, it has been quite the year in the uh, financial markets, really historic by several measures and not necessarily the uh, type of history we want to see uh, the S&P 500 is currently down around 23% on track for one of its worst years in history. And you look at some of the drivers here, uh, obviously the Fed raising rates with this inflationary backdrop and all of the potential ramifications of that on the economy. Uh, we have geopolitical factors, uh, certainly Russia, Ukraine at the top of that list. And then I think you could argue uh, valuations were simply stretched coming into this uh, year, and those are now compressing in certain areas of the market. 
And all of that is to say nothing of what we've seen on the uh, bond side of the equation, which has been equally bad, uh, if not worse. Now, we are going to focus in on minimum volatility ETFs this week. But I thought to start, and Abby, I'll I'll toss this to you. Uh, Just given what I laid out there, I'm curious what you're hearing from uh, clients right now and maybe how that differs from last year or even the several years prior to that. How have your conversations changed? Hearing you lay out that range of uh, challenges that markets have had really puts things into perspective, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, Our clients have been contending with really a number of fast-moving challenges this year, ranging from, as you've noted, positioning within fixed-income portfolios to a market that isn't just volatile, but rather it's wholly driven from week to week by different and, frankly, often completely opposite narratives. And so this means that resilience has really been at the forefront for many investors. And this takes the form of, in some cases, rethinking asset allocation. Um, I think this is maybe the first year that I've heard actual meaningful conversation in the investment community about whether the usual assumptions about a 60-40 portfolio can hold going forward. But much more commonly, investors are thinking about how do we introduce downside protection within the various sleeves of uh, the portfolio. Okay, so it's interesting because when you talk about rethinking asset allocation and potentially uh, reducing downside risk in a portfolio, we know that an area of interest this year has been minimum volatility ETFs. And before we get into these, uh, Abby, I'd love to have you briefly touch on the flows into these products. I think they're worth highlighting because they do reflect how investors are rethinking asset allocation and, and risk management. And I did briefly touch on these in my prior segment with Vetify's Todd Rosenbluth, but I'd love to have you just add some context around these. We often like to look at ETF flows in general as a measure of market sentiment. Um, Where are investors buying? Where are they selling in aggregate? And um, that certainly holds on the MinVol side. So within equities, this need for resilience it has created huge demand for minimum volatility ETFs. And by that, we mean ETFs that seek to own a basket of stocks that in aggregate are lower risk than the broad market, and they may offer that much-needed downside reduction. Um, Over time, MinVol tends to have market-like returns with much lower risk. And it's been a banner here for the iShare suite of what we lovingly call MinVol ETFs, We've seen about $7 billion in inflows year-to-date. And something very notable is that buying has come uh, across the client spectrum, from individual investors making trades in their personal accounts, all the way to giant institutions managing many billions of dollars. And so this really speaks to, I think, both the broad usage of ETFs, like our MinVol suite, that seek a differentiated outcome from the broad market, so not just vanilla market beta. And it also speaks to, frankly, the widespread adoption of ETFs across the asset management industry. Okay, so the flagship minimum volatility ETF uh, at iShares is USMV, the iShares MSCI USA MinVol Factor ETF. That tracks the MSCI USA Minimum Volatility Index nearly... $30 billion in this ETF. And so I thought, let's uh, use this as an example. And I think a good place to start is to perhaps compare and contrast this with a quote-unquote low volatility approach. Because I've got to tell you, I see a lot of confusion from investors around this. And so, uh, Anil, I'll ask you this. Just walk through the basics of what a minimum volatility strategy is. I know Abby started down that path. I'd love to have have you elaborate. But then, then again, just also compare and contrast this with a low-vol approach. Yeah, sure. Um, first off, thanks thanks for having us on. Um, it's nice to be here again with Abby. Maybe I'll just start by acknowledging what you said, Nathan, that there are several ways, you know, each with their pros and cons, of getting to a low-risk portfolio. Um, and one very straightforward way is to just hold a low-risk sector or industry say, for example, utilities or transportation stocks. That gets us to low risk, but in fact might have performed very well during certain periods, 
but it obviously has you know huge sector bias. Um, so that's probably not the best way of getting to a low risk portfolio, although it actually has low risk. Um, another method is to say hold low beta stocks across all sectors. Um, so that might entail, for example, sporting a whole stock universe. Uh, say all U.S. stocks or all global stocks by some measure, say their historical risk or historical beta, and then selecting the lowest, you know, 100 stocks or the lowest 200 stocks by risk. Again, that's relatively straightforward, but that could also introduce some sector or country biases. A final way, um, and this is what we do at MSCI, is to identify lower stocks, but also take into account the relationships, that is, the correlations between stocks. And when we do that, you could actually have firms that could be high risk, right? The portfolio could hold something that's high risk, but it might have a business line, business model that hedges or, you know, is counter-cyclical to some other firm in the index. Um, so take, for example, an airline and an oil extractor, right? Both of those might be high risk independently, but one does relatively well as oil prices go up. The other one, the airline stock, does relatively poorly as oil prices go down. So that would be reflected in their correlations, and we would you know, ideally pick up that type of behavior. <clears throat> O'Neill, if we were to dive maybe one layer deeper, I'm curious when MSCI is constructing minimum volatility strategies, what are some of the key considerations here? Because investors obviously get to experience the end products that uh, track these indices, but what are some of the key factors to ensure that these products actually deliver what is expected? Yeah, I think minimum volatility, um, the, the construction used to be considered on the more complex side. I think now with the proliferation of quantitative and optimized methods and ETFs, I don't know if that moniker, if that description holds true anymore. So it's certainly not a fundamental stock picking portfolio, and it's certainly not a highly active quant portfolio. It lies somewhere in the ground between. And the objective is relatively simple, right? Is we want to minimize the total volatility, that is the overall risk, of a starting universe of stocks. But importantly, we want to do that subject to some important guardrails. And it just turns out we use optimization to do this process, that is to minimize risk. And all that means is, as I mentioned before, we just want to take into account the individual stock risks, the airline versus the oil stock, um, but also the correlations, the relationships between them. And we just want to find the right weight to each of the stocks such that the overall portfolio risk is minimized. And then we do that again every six months and so on and so on. So ultimately, we're just holding not just stocks that are less sensitive to the market, but a portfolio that is less sensitive to the overall market. Um, so the outcome should be that it would have less upside on the way up and less downside on the way down. Some of those benefits that Abby mentioned, that that downside protection, that's all a result of this process that we, that we just talked through. I mentioned <clears throat> um, some important guardrails, and what we don't want to do is have a sector portfolio, again, of all utilities or transport stocks or a relatively low-risk country of just, say, U.S. stock, right? We want to try and hold as close to the sector and geographic mix as the starting universe. So it turns out that that's actually a really important guardrail. Um, in fact, we did a test recently to see what would happen if we just turned off the sector guardrail. And so that portfolio actually did quite well throughout 2022, right? It beat the, the, the kind of sector-constrained portfolio. And that's just because this year started off quite good for energy and utility stocks for all the reasons that you mentioned at the outset. Um, but over the longer horizon, that portfolio lagged considerably. So the sector guardrails do improve return, they lower drawdown, and ultimately they lower portfolio beta. Yeah, and on that last note, uh, in terms of investor expectations for these strategies, and as we start thinking about actual portfolio application, and Abby, I'll ask you this, uh, what should be the expectation with MinVol strategies? And, and by the way, I should have noted earlier, 
iShares does offer a full suite of these ETFs. There's a small cap version, uh, developed international, emerging markets. There's a global version. But what should investors expect when using these strategies in terms of the overall ride? Mm. Because it's been such a great year for Minval, we've been in this, frankly, unusual position of helping clients set those reasonable expectations for the role that Minval can can play in their portfolio. Um, Clients have noticed how well Minval has delivered on the need for resilience this year. So, for example, um, our flagship ETF, uh, USMV, which is our U.S. equity Minval ETF, it's outperformed the S&P 500 on about 75% of days when the market was down this year and on every day when the market was down by 2% or worse through the end of September. So these are really eye-popping numbers, um, but really highlight the need for setting those, uh, those reasonable expectations. What, what? So we see clients... I'm sorry. No, ahead. no, please go ahead. We see clients using Minval ETFs um, for strategic, so long-term asset allocation, as well as to reflect their shorter-term tactical outlook. Um, you know, Minval ETFs, they can be a very precise tool to take expected risk down within your equity allocation at the core. And that means that most investors actually do use our Minval ETFs strategically. So they make it part of their long-term holdings. Um, and we can see that in the asset base. We manage well over $40 billion in our suite of, of Minval ETFs. What's been interesting to see this year on the tactical side is certainly inflows into the uh, U.S. fund, USMV. But we've also seen significant adoption of our international Minval ETFs. Uh, tickers there are EFAV for international developed markets and EEMV for emerging markets. And so in this case, um, investors, particularly model managers, they want to maintain their asset allocation. So they want to own international equities. They want to be invested in emerging markets. But maybe they don't have um, quite as rosy a picture um, for expected returns for those um, areas of the market. And so they are staying invested and maintaining that asset allocation, but taking the risk down significantly by using Minval ETFs. So the usage, again, there's both long-term and more tactical usage of our Minval ETFs, um, and usage really is global in nature. Can you talk a little bit more about that investor behavior component with minimum volatility strategies? Because I think it seems uh, intuitive that these would be easier for investors to stick with over the long run because they are getting a smoother ride overall. Do, do you find that's actually the case, that investors are more well-behaved in these strategies? A lot of financial advisors use Arminval ETFs not just as investment tools, but frankly as practice management tools. Um, clients can get very skittish when markets are down. I think all of us can relate very closely to that desire. You know, the market is down 10, 20, 30 percent. You want to bail out, go to cash, um, maybe put it under the mattress. We can all relate to that. Um, but all investors essentially struggle with market timing. This is true both for individuals and for the most sophisticated professional investors. Um, and so for advisors, often one of the big challenges that they have for their practice and for helping their clients reach their desired investment objectives is helping them stay invested. And Minval can help achieve that um, within client portfolios by offering full exposure to equities. These are equity-only portfolios, equity-only ETFs, but with much lower risk. Abby, what I was going to ask you earlier is, uh, I'm sure you recall the COVID crash in March of 2020 when minimum volatility strategies, they they caught a little bit of flack because they were down as much as the broader market. Do you want to speak to that at all? Because I do think it scared away at least a few investors from Minval ETFs. It looks like they're coming back now by looking at the flows. But what happened during that time frame? Thank you for the question. This is a really important one. Um, So as I mentioned, our Minval ETFs, they're long only and equity only, meaning that they don't own any other asset classes 
and they don't short anything. There's no, no options in here. And so that means that when everything is intensely down, and, you know, quintessential example of that is the COVID sell-off in February and March of 2020, there is nowhere to hide inequities. And so that means that historically, during these short periods of indiscriminate sell-offs, Minval has not meaningfully outperformed the broad market. But in environments like this year, where the broad market is down certainly dramatically, but there is notable dispersion in stock returns, Minval has a much better hit rate on protecting all the downside. Um, So think about it in terms of in truly calamitous environments, everything is down. There's nowhere to hide inequities. But in periods of heightened volatility and market drawdown, that tends to be where Minval can really shine. No, I think that's well said. And I think, you know, the key point here is the strategy is intended to work over the long run uh, and you know, shouldn't be measured just in shorter periods of time. Uh, just a couple of minutes left before I let you go. Any closing thoughts here? And, Anil, I'll, I'll start with you. Any, any uh, parting words? Yeah, sure. Um, I think we get caught up a lot in U.S. stocks and perspectives from a U.S.-based investor. Um, and that's natural. Um, but one fascinating aspect, and I think Abby highlighted this very briefly, um, one fascinating aspect of minimum volatility is its universality across geographies. So as bad as U.S. stocks have fared this year, emerging markets and international stocks, particularly Europe, have had it much worse. That's on the heels of China's slowdown, the looming European recession. All those have weighed on investors in those regions. So how is minimum volatility done? in those reasons. Well, first, most importantly, it's delivered on the lower risk outcome. So it has, historically, and even this year, it has about 25% lower risk than the broad market in all the three major regions, U.S., international, developed, and emerging markets. Secondly, it's outperformed in each of those regions by a little over 3% in international developed, 7% in the U.S., and over 9% in emerging markets. So I think I would just close on that note that, you know, let's think outside the U.S. and some of these strategies, some of these behavioral biases, they work just as well abroad as well. Abby, any final uh, words you would uh, close with here? Yeah, I think I've got two two main thoughts. First is around Minval. Um, I would encourage uh, you to think about them as portfolio tools. They are tools to help target um, more precise investor outcomes. Um, and so over the long term, Minval, as we've talked about during this conversation, uh, tend to offer market-like returns with less risk. Um, and those tools can be used either for those core strategic asset allocation decisions Um, Think of it as sort of buying insurance before the calamity comes, um, or they can be used as tactical tools for reducing risk over shorter time periods. Secondly, uh, we have some great tools at BlackRock and at iShares for advisors to dig deeper into the risk and return characteristics of their portfolios. Um, The main one that I want to talk about is Advisor Center, um, which you can access either at iShares.com or BlackRock.com. This is a totally free tool that brings the power of Aladdin, um, which is our institutional quality um, risk management platform, to advisors. You can load your portfolios in, look at their risk um, in some really interesting ways, um, and look at what changes to the portfolio might have an impact on those overall portfolio characteristics. So I would, I would encourage everyone listening um, to go check out Advisor Center as well. Well, Abby, Anil, uh, simply tremendous insight this week. Again, such a timely topic given everything going on in the markets right now. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having us. That was Abby Woodham, Vice President of Factor Strategy at BlackRock, and Anil Rao, Executive Director of Research at MSCI. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs, a new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results. 
a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Tom Cole, CEO and co-founder of Distillate Capital, who is now behind three ETFs, the Distillate U.S. Fundamental Stability and Value ETF, ticker symbol DSTL. They have an international version of that strategy, ticker DSTX. And then just last Thursday, they launched the Distillate Small Mid Cash Flow ETF, ticker DSMC, and Tom is now on the line with me from Chicago. Tom, welcome back to the uh, podcast. It's been a little while. It has been, Nate, but uh, pleased to be back and um, and glad to be with you. All right, so look, you have what I think is a uh, highly interesting and very under-the-radar ETF in ticker DSTL. So I was looking this morning at the start of last year, this had about $200 million in assets, which is certainly pretty good. But this ETF is now at around $750 million. And I'll add to that, which I think you'll appreciate, when we last chatted in 2019, this ETF had about $35 million in assets. So what's happened here over the past few years, especially uh, more recently? Yeah, you know, uh, Nate, we've been out trying to grow the business, obviously, but I think uh, we offer something that's pretty, still pretty unique. Um, and when we get in front of uh, the wealth management community, I think what we're doing is answering questions around why value is done so poorly that people really hadn't heard before, and we're offering something that's a pretty simple and intuitive solution that's really a return to first principles that has resonated with a lot of people, um, not only in the context of, of their value opportunity, but in better understanding some other questions that they may have uh, about the way the markets have been behaving. Okay, so let's do this. Let's discuss DSTL in a bit more detail, and then we can certainly touch on the other two ETFs. And then I want sure. to come back to the uh, the broader markets and the value factor moving forward. Uh, so DSTL, this is, and I, I, I pulled this from the fact sheet, this is, quote, attempting to correct the shortcomings of traditional metrics for judging the quality and value of stocks. So explain what that means and explain what's going on underneath the hood here. Sure. So, uh, you know, if you if you roll the clocks back a bit, uh, just to set the stage, you know, value became an incredibly popular category of investing because uh, it did better than the market. If if you go back to 1960, which granted is a long time ago, but if you had started then and each quarter just simply bought the stocks that were the least expensive on the basis of price to book ratios what you would have seen is that you would have outperformed the market by something like eightfold over the course of the ensuing 30 years. But that relationship really stopped working around 1990. And we think there's a very logical reason for why it stopped working. Uh, and that is that the underlying economy that we're operating in changed. We moved from an economy that was driven by physical assets to one that's now driven uh, by intellectual assets and specifically uh, value creation by way of um, uh, by way of uh, spending r and d and and the reason that that's really important and I should say you know r and d used to be uh, a small uh, uh, you know fraction of the total spending on capital expenditures. It's now about 2x the level of capital spending. So, you know, just to give you some sense of how much our economy has changed over time. But the reason that that's really important to value investing is that in the old days when capital was spent, it was put on a balance sheet, it was expensed slowly over time. 
today's economy, R&D uh, spending is actually expensed as incurred. And, and so what that leaves you with is a, a lot of companies that don't really have meaningful book values. That book value no longer is a reasonable surrogate for the worth of business uh, as it was in the past. So not only do you have these apples to oranges comparisons when you're trying to uh, compare, say, an Apple to an AT&T or Microsoft to a General Motors, but you have this distortion that's occurred over time uh, that no longer allows you to make relevant comparisons of today's you know, pricing in the market, whether you're doing it on a price-to-book basis or a price-to-earnings basis, with the numbers that we've seen historically. And I think you know, when you get under the hood and understand the accounting, uh, you see why we went to free cash flow as a much better representation of the underlying economics of the businesses that we might invest in. And because we can get to a very clean uh, free cash flow estimate and compare that to enterprise value across any type of business, whether it's driven by R&D or capital spending, we can make a much more accurate comparison of valuation. So when we talk about valuation, we're talking about a free cash flow yield, whether we measure it against enterprise value or market cap. But that, in, in our work, suggests it's a much better uh, more accurate apples-to-apples comparison. Now, the risk part of this is the other element of the strategy, and we actually lead with risk. And there, I guess, you know, we, we take a fairly meaningful break from industry convention in that we don't utilize stock price volatility as a surrogate for risk. In, instead of presuming that the degree to which a stock is volatile reflects the underlying economics, we look at the underlying economics. So we look back over time uh, how a business has generated free cash flow through history and ideally through a business cycle. Then we, com- we create a comparison metric that allows us to rank stocks from the most volatile to the least volatile. And we simply pr- eliminate from consideration those stocks that are the most volatile. Of those that meet our quality criteria, and there's one incremental uh, thing that we throw in there around eliminating highly indebted businesses, we simply buy those that are the least expensive. So when we step back and look at it, Nate, I would suggest that we've returned to the sort of the, the, the very, you know, sort of first principles of value investing, creating a portfolio that uh, has downside protection characteristics uh, and that also um, – you know, uh, thinks about valuation in a way that's integral to risk in that, you know, if you pay less for stocks, you have less downside, you have more downside protection. Um, so that's it in a nutshell. It's, it's you know, I've gone on for a bit, but it's actually in, in practice a fairly simple uh, strategy. And it's a relatively concentrated portfolio, correct? Around 100 holdings? Yes, it's 100 holdings. Uh, exactly, and we and we limit to it to a hundred simply to to um, eliminate some turnover on the margins. But that gives us a very diversified portfolio across uh, across industries. From a uh, performance standpoint, so DSTL it has outperformed the S and P five hundred by about five points this year. And then I was looking since its inception in twenty eighteen. I'm showing it's outperformed by uh, around twenty percent total. But if I look over just the past year or so, I have seen a few other value ETFs that are down a little bit less than DSTL. Do you mind just talking about the performance ride and how you feel like DSTL has stacked up against some of the other value ETFs out there? Yeah, sure. I mean, we're um, yeah, we think the uh, the broad market benchmarks are uh, a much more difficult. Uh, benchmark to beat, and so when when we come at things, we don't we're pretty agnostic as to as to what you might call something. Um, I would say a couple things, Nate. One is that uh, because the benchmarks are still largely uh, either solely driven or largely driven by stocks that have low price to book ratios, the value benchmarks. Um, what you see in those benchmarks is a concentration to financials and energy. And so 
not to not to you know suggest this is an excuse, but um, you know the rally that you've seen in here in value, we would suggest is more driven by industry factors than it is to a return uh, to a style. You know, we don't think people ever truly stopped in a wholesale way caring about what they pay for stocks. It's just that you need to measure it more accurately than utilizing either price book or uh, price earning ratios. So, uh, you know, we've seen uh, some of the value funds and offerings that are out there do a little better than the market, uh, particularly this year, you know, declining less. But over the long term, uh, we're not even sure that most of the value benchmarks truly represent a group of stocks that are trading at a low price to worth. Instead, that it's more of an accounting artifact. And in that context, you know, we're long-term investors, and we've done better than the value benchmarks over a long period of time. And uh, and, and I think we're set up in a way that is very logical, and, um, and 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 that probably the value benchmarks are going to struggle uh, as they're being constructed right now for a long period of time. Tom, just a few minutes left here. On the uh, international version, you offer DSTX and then the ETF you just launched last week, the uh, small and mid-cap version, DSMC. Are these essentially the uh, same underlying investment process as DSTL, just using different stock universes? Yeah, they are, Nate. I mean, there's a few more guardrails put up around the international portfolio to the extent that you know, we're not doing any subjective work uh, on any of our our holdings. So just to be clear, we're making use of uh, consensus uh, forward-looking free cash flow estimates when we're talking about the large uh, offerings, so DSTL and DSTX, uh, and, the, and the strategies that follow them. Uh, on the on the small cap side, we're looking at trailing numbers because uh, the free cash flow data isn't as as richly uh, available. Um, sorry, I lost my train of thought in terms of where I was going to go with that. Um, but but okay, so the but the um, the underlying sort of thought process, if you will, Nate, is exactly the same. So we're going to lead with risk. We're going to get to a group of, of companies that we think are reasonably bulletproof uh, and able to you know, survive the unforeseen, whether it be a recession or a pandemic. And then we're going to use a free cash flow yield uh, to, uh, to, uh, to make the, the final stock selection. Um, so, yeah, it, it is really a very consistent uh, thought process applied to all three portfolios. Tom, quickly uh, here before I let you go, any quick thoughts sure. on the uh, the market environment and, and what you're watching moving forward? And I, I guess in particular, whether you think the uh, value factor is here to stay, the uh, correctly measured value factor, that is. W what's on your radar? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, from our vantage point, uh, Nate, value never really stopped working. It certainly takes pauses in time, but people have, by and large, uh, you know, care about what they pay for stocks. It's just that the value benchmarks are doing a fairly uh, lousy job of, of reflecting that. So we're not, you know, calling for anything in particular. Um, you know, the characteristics of the small cap, uh, uh, small mid cap account, given the sell off that we've seen, are are pretty attractive. And I say, I would I would suggest that you know, on balance, um, whether you're looking at large cap international or uh, you know, the small cap account, we're starting with a free cash flow yield uh, that is certainly more constructive uh, than a lot of the commentary that's out there right now. I mean, things from our vantage point, you know, sound very bearish. There's a lot of reasons to be concerned. You know, honestly, there are always a lot of reasons to be concerned. But if you're starting, you know, say in the, on, the, on the small mid-cap portfolio with a free cash flow yield that's double-digit and you were to add something to that for growth and something to that for inflation, you're looking at a you know potentially a mid-teens return long term, which which is very consistent, uh, potentially higher than the long-term returns in equity. So, you know, we call ourselves boring optimists, but uh, we're actually, I think, probably on balance much more constructive than most people in the market.
Well, Tom, again, so great having you back on the uh, podcast. Congratulations on all the success with DSTL and, and certainly the uh, new launch with DSMC. Best of luck to you moving forward, and uh, thank you for joining me this week. No, thank you, Nate. Appreciate the opportunity. Good luck. That was Tom Cole, CEO and co-founder of Distillate Capital. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, iShares. If you would like to learn more about iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com slash sustainable. Next week, really excited about this. Two very interesting ETF issuers. I'll be joined by FM Investments' Alex Morris. So they recently came out with a lineup of single treasury bond ETFs. We're going to go in-depth on those. And then Constrained Capital's Mark Newman will spotlight the ESG Orphans ETF. And I'll just tell you, tell you now, Mark is someone who is uh, very passionate with his views on ESG. So you'll definitely want to catch that one. Until then, have a great week, everyone. Hey folks, Dave Nodding from Vetify here. You know, as a financial futurist, I'm supposed to be looking ahead. And what I'm looking ahead to is the second annual exchange ETF conference. It's right around the corner. We'll be back in Miami Beach, Florida, February 5th through February 8th. It's going to be the largest gathering of financial advisors in the whole community. We're hard at work making sure it's going to be an experience you're not going to forget with incredible content, great networking opportunities, and most importantly, a chance to really connect with a community of advisors as real people. I mean, after all, this is supposed to be about you. We had a great first year in 2022. We're super excited to show you how we're taking this whole idea of an event to the next level next year in 2023. We want to hang out with ETF Prime listeners in particular. So go ahead and head to exchangeetf.com and you can use the code PRIME to get a discounted advisor ticket. And that's good until the end of the year. So we hope you'll join us. Thanks.